Welcome to the To Faithful Men podcast. This project started in 2006 to preserve old sermon and study tapes of Wiley Flanagan, Hassel Wallace, and Mike Strevel. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Let's turn to the scriptures this morning together to the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew. And we're going to consider the third parable in a series of parables that Jesus taught somewhat along the same lines of the idea that the kingdom of God is going to be taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. The first parable, the parable of the two sons, we discover the horror of Phariseeism. They say and do not. In the next parable, we have this story about the man who planted the vineyard, hired it out, went on a journey, and attempted to get the fruits from the vineyard, but was rebuffed every time, shamefully. His servants were mistreated, some killed. He finally sent his son. He said, they will reverence my son. But they said, this is the heir. If we'll kill him, we'll have the vineyard to ourselves. So they killed the son. He came and took the kingdom from them. The consequences of Phariseeism. The kingdom was taken from them. And now we come to this third parable. We... we we seem to see here some continuity by these connecting words. And we see that one in chapter 22, verse 1, by the word, uh, he answered and spake unto them again. They, they have responded badly to his two teachings. They perceived, the Pharisees did, the Jewish rulers, that Jesus was speaking this against them, and they would have killed him. There was the parable right there. And they would have killed him had it not been that they feared the crowd. But Jesus said again to them this parable. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son. He sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not. Again he sent forth servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, How camest thou hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. They are totally unaffected by the parable that Jesus taught, though they understood the nature of it. We find in this parable several remarkable truths that I hope God will bless us to, to see this day, to rejoice in this day. He uses the imagery of a wedding, a happy time, a festive time. We all, we all love a wedding, unless you were the father of the bride, in which case you might not enjoy it quite as well as some others do, or the mother of the bride. But, uh, everyone loves a wedding, loves to go to a wedding. It's a happy time, it's a time of rejoicing. Well, the Bible paints a picture of wedding. In the, in the scriptures, it is a, it is a festive time, it is a glorious time, a wonderful time, but here, there's some sadness attached to a wedding, yeah, even tragedy attached to the idea of a wedding. The king is preparing a wedding for his son. And he sent out the invitations. And they scorned his invitation. They made light of his invitation. They did not properly regard his invitation. And some of them even took and killed the servants who went out to make the invitations. Now, once again, we see some clear parallels here between the prophets, the servants of God who were sent to the Jewish nation, to the people of God, to the chosen nation of Israel, and they made light of it. They would not come. And and not only would they not come, they, they uh, humiliated the king by not only the refusal, but the mistreatment of his servants. We're reminded of the example in the Old Testament where David made a goodwill gesture to a neighboring king. or uh, Yeah, David made this goodwill gesture to a neighboring king. And, and this king totally mistook David's intentions and took his servants and treated them shamefully and brought his wrath on them. And so they're familiar with this this imagery here. Now, I'm just going to confess to you this morning there's certain aspects of all this I don't I don't pretend to understand. I do know this. There's a basic rule of Bible interpretation that goes something like this. There is in scripture what is called a progressive uh revelation of truth. And to take any section or part of a scripture and try to build doctrine on any section of scripture is a mistake. You have to, you have to see what the whole Bible says about a given su- a subject here. Now, we're thankfully not left in the dark about some more revelation on this business of the Jews. And last week we, we referred you to the 9th, 10th, and 11th chapter of the book of Romans where Paul deals extensively with this subject. 
Now, I do know this, and, and I, I'm going to say that I believe this is the truth, even though I don't quite understand how it all works. I believe that the invitation to the wedding was a sincere invitation, was a real invitation, an honest invitation. If the Jews would, they might come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we're going to talk more about the wedding. There's more revealed to us in the Scripture about the wedding. And so it is when, when God sent His Word through His prophets, yea, when He sent His own Son to the Jewish nation to bid them to follow Him and, and to submit their lives to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, this was a real and this was a sincere work of God. And yet we see in the providence of God that it was purposed from all eternity that they would not listen. Think of this. When, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness, was that not an honest, open, sincere um, request to Pharaoh? Could he not have, in, in humanly speaking, submitted to the word of God and let those people go? We believe that they could have. The only other alternative is that somehow or another, God forced them, forced Pharaoh to disallow the request. And that would be a mistake because then we would have God moving men to sin. And we cannot, we cannot allow that a God who is perfectly holy and just and good would move men to sin. Would, would, would force upon them in some irresistible thing a, a, uh, a, a sinful action. And, in, and the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah was the ultimate sinful action. Well, Paul deals, uh, Peter deals with it like this in the fourth chapter of the book of, of Acts. He says that Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That determinate counsel is the same word as translated predestination in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. It was, it was sure, it was set that Jesus Christ would come and give his life a ransom for sin. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. There's our exact word back in Romans chapter, uh, 8 and verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. That was because of God's eternal love. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So we, we're, we're forced with this age-old theological debate, which sometimes I fear is, is a striving of words to no profit. And the best of our preachers among us have tried to quell this with reasonable explanations of this, and so do our confessions, that, that, uh, that yes, this was purposed by God, yes, this was set by God, and yet men are responsible for their sins. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Did God make Pharaoh disallow his request? Well, it was so much as said in two ways in, in the book of Exodus. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not let them go. But it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart because God had purposed upon, upon Pharaoh to show his great power. We read about that in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. So we have here, I believe, some some way of trying to wade through this deep issue 
of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Did God send an honest, open, free invitation to the Jewish people to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Into the marriage of Jesus Christ, we must say yes. He did not give some, some offer that they could not come to. It is said here they would not come. And yet we know that God has, has declared the end from the beginning. And so what we believe is that, you know, someone has said on this issue, does God predestinate men to, to hell? Ah, oh, that's the big booger bear in the idea of predestination. Well, we can understand that God predestinated people to go to heaven. The only people that could ever go to heaven are those who were pre, predestinated by God. Spurgeon said this. I thought it was wise. He said, God didn't need to predestinate men to go to hell because all men were going there anyway. It was a great act of God's mercy to predestinate men unto heaven. And so it would be wrong for us to say that God predestinated men to hell because God allows men to go their way that they would choose by nature. Some he has purpose to arrest. Some he has purpose to lead to their own just condemnation. That his justice might be glorified and that attribute of God might be glorified as much as it is in his mercy. And so it is when we preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Lord Jesus said, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, that's a universal call. The, the, the parable ends with many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, I'm so thankful as a minister of the gospel of Christ. I, I had the blessing yesterday of preaching on the radio in the Philippines. Believe it or not, this man that brother, uh, the brother down in Texas, he knew this preacher over in the Philippines and he's, he's coming to love the doctrine of grace and, and, uh, so he put him in touch with me and he asked me if I would preach on the radio. I said, well, sure. So, so I called him up on the telephone. They put me on the radio and, I got cut off about halfway through, I think. But anyway, I, I preached for a while. And I didn't know who I was preaching to. But I, I preached I preached to whoever was out there listening. And when we preach the gospel of the grace of God, we preach. Whosoever will, let him come. That is a free declaration of the purpose and power of God. And the only reason that people do not come to the Lord Jesus Christ is they will not come to Christ. Now, the sweet truth of, of sovereign grace is that, that even though no man would come on his own account, yet God in his sovereign mercy works in the hearts of his people so that they will to come. And so the scripture says, thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. It is God which worketh in you both the will and the to-do of his good pleasure. And so we do not have to worry about, is this one of the elect? Now, should I preach the gospel to him? We do not, we do not worry about such things. We, we do not contemplate such things. We preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ will save to the uttermost them who come unto him by faith. And so it is with this, these, these messengers. This was, this was not some taunting thing that the king did to some who, who had, who, who, uh, could not come. Jesus himself says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee under my wings as a hen does her, her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, we understand the sovereignty of God in that. 
That his eternal purpose is in that. That this was already prophesied of from the beginning. How that the Gentiles would come in. And the mountain of the Lord would be exalted among the Gentiles. But yet, Jesus said, and this was so. How often would I have gathered you together? Let us not be of those who, who hold so much to the sovereignty of God that we would not properly consider the, the accountability of man. Nor would we go to the extreme that, of the accountability of man that where we would ignore the sovereignty of God. Now, that's not our problem. Our problem is going to be the first, not the second one, if we've got a problem. And so it is with most people who, who love the truth of sovereign grace. They would just exclude accountability. But here we find, I believe, a true and real offer. And so the invitation of the gospel is this, found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 29, 30. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest of your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, that is a true and honest invitation. To whom? Those who labor and are heavy laden. These Jews, think of this. What a horror. Here is, here is the wedding of all weddings. Uh, here is, here is the, the wedding to end all weddings. The Son of God by the King of Heaven. And He sends this invitation. And this invitation is scorned. And so, He says this. The King was wroth. The word expresses deep, fierce anger. Oh, uh, aren't we thankful this morning that the Bible tells us that God is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. But oh, my friends, when God's anger is kindled, when His wrath is worked up, it is an awful thing to see. And so we see it in the destruction of Jerusalem. We spoke of it this morning in our, in our prayer time, our nation at war in Iraq seeing our own young men, women uh, killed in that, in that foreign place and, and, and the whole abortion issue. And, and I, certainly God's anger is kindled against us because of, of our sins, the sins of this nation. And it would serve us right if, if, our, if our efforts to, to stop the terrorism that has, that has benighted us in the last years were to completely fall on the ground and we were to completely fall before our enemies, it would, it would indeed serve us right if that were to happen. Who would blame God if such a thing were to happen? And yet, has He not had mercy upon us? Has He not blessed our arms in Afghanistan and even blessed our arms in Iraq? And, and we, we are thankful that our Senate and our House has passed a, a bill to ban at least this most heinous form of abortion. And we have a president who will sign it. Oh, it makes me think along the way that God is yet showing mercy and the cup of His wrath is not yet filled. But oh, we need to pray every day of our lives for the mercy of God and for the grace of God to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth because if that cup ever gets filled, America will know something that she has never known before. It will make Pearl Harbor and September the 9th look like peanuts. May God deliver us from such a thing. May there always be an assault and light in this country that God would be pleased as He, as he said He would have in Sodom and Gomorrah to spare us for that. But finally, after centuries, the cup of God's wrath is filled to the brim. 
And so he says this. He was wroth and he sent forth his army. Oh, I love that expression. He sent forth his armies. His armies were the armies of the heathen empire of Rome. Titus, the general, one of the great Roman generals, later became the emperor of Rome. He thought it was his army that God sent to destroy Jerusalem. But oh no, it was God's army. Nebuchadnezzar thought it was his army that was to come up against Jerusalem to bring judgment upon them for their sins. But oh no, my friends, we read in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah that it was God's army. And so we believe that God ruled in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The king was angry and he sent his army. And within a generation of the utterance of these words, Indeed, Jerusalem was beset by armies, and we'll see more of this in some of the parables later on. The, the city of Jerusalem was beset by the magnificent armies of Rome, the irresistible power of the Roman Empire, and it was crushed to the ground. Oh, and to read about it in the works of Flavius Josephus, whose works are still in existence today, almost a must reading for every, every uh, preacher at least. It's, it's hard reading. For anyone, but we see a detailed account of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to bear here. When Jerusalem was destroyed and, and the people of, of Israel were scattered among the nations of the earth. And so are they to this day. But oh, I'm so glad that that's not the end of the parable. Oh, what a blessing it is that this parable goes on because it encompasses me. And you, by the grace of God. And so he says, Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. I love an expression I read also by Spurgeon. He said something to this effect, that, that anger is, is God's sometimes character. But mercy is his delight. God delights in mercy. He could have destroyed these people from off the earth. But as he did in the days of Noah, when his anger went out against the inhabitants of the earth because of their love of violence and wickedness, yet there was one man of whom it was said, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Listen, my friends, Noah didn't, didn't, wasn't chosen by God because of his good works. God chose him in spite of the good works. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found unmerited favor from God. And so God came to him and revealed himself to him, and he built this ark. And so it is that among the vast multitudes of the earth, who until the times of, of the Lord Jesus Christ were, in Paul's words, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant, without hope, without God in this world. We read that in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. My friends, that describes you and me. That describes us Gentiles. We were cut off from the covenants of God. Strangers to the promises of God. Without God. Without hope in the world. Oh, just think about people who live and, and die, even to this day, who have no thoughts of God, no hope in God, no help from God. What a sad and pitiable condition that is. 
And so God had mercy upon a remnant of the people of God. And so he sends forth his servants. Now, these are different servants. Now, these are not Jewish prophets. These are New Testament preachers of the gospel of Christ. First to the apostles and then all of those who follow in their in their wake. Yea, even I myself have the sweet blessing this morning of being among them who, who are called of God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. What is this good news? The good news, there's a, there's a marriage supper. It's prepared. It's already fixed. The oxen are killed. They're fatted. They're killed. The table is spread. Come and eat of this, of this meal. And I'm thankful that as a minister of the gospel of Christ, I may make that, that, uh, offer that proclamation freely without hesitation this day that there is a great supper. There is a great feast prepared for all who will come and take of that meal. And so it is that there are many today who will not come. But oh, what a sweet mercy of God's grace that He works in the hearts of His people and causes us. What is it that makes us to differ? What is it that makes us see something in this wedding uh, supper here, this, this bridal feast that, that the Jews did not see? I'll tell you what it is. And it's found in, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. And the apostles there had preached to the Jews and, it, and the Jews rejected it according to the words of Jesus. And he said, lo, we, it, was, it was necessary that we preach to the, to the Jews first, but lo, now we turn to the Gentiles. And it said, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And so we proclaim the gospel message that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and that there's a great wedding feast that's yet to be partaken of. This, this feast has not yet taken place. It is something that, that's happening in a sense even now as we come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us about another day when the, when the bridegroom is going to return and the, there's going to be the consummation of this great wedding that's been purposed by God. We'll read about that when we get to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. We'll read about it in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And so they go out and, and they compel whoever will to come in, to come in. Notice this passage of Scripture then. Well, first off, let's, let's, there's, there's an interesting addendum to this. The obvious meaning of this parable is the Jews to whom this invitation was originally given have deemed themselves unworthy of everlasting life and they would not come. And so he turns to the Gentiles and many of them come. As many as were ordained to eternal life come. But then there's this addendum to the story. An interesting addendum. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Several remarkable things about this. Here's this wedding feast. Everybody has on a wedding garment. This wedding garment was provided. These, these were the, the poor, the the hopeless, the helpless. These people didn't have appropriate wedding attire. It was given to them. It was given to them. We'll read about that in the book of Revelation. But one of them came in. Presumptuous was he. And he came into the wedding feast in his street clothes. The king approached him. And I love this. He does not approach him uh, confrontationally. He says, friend. He, he wants to give him an opportunity to explain himself. Perhaps 
he's unaware of of what was going on here. Perhaps somehow he missed the receiving of this for whatever reason. He addresses him as friend. Why are you here without a wedding garment? And then he waits and listens for the response. Well, what was this man thinking? Was he thinking that he could could be a pretender to follow Christ? The Bible tells us that that um, that there are pretenders. There are false professors among Christians. We're reminded of the story that Isaiah told. It speaks of a day of desolation. Such a desolation in which it said that seven women will take hold of one man. There will, there will be such a, a probably war of some sort in which the male population is decimated and, and all of these women, they want a husband. And so they lay hold of this man and says this, Let us be called by thy name, but we will wear our own clothes. Ah, uh, God says through His prophet Isaiah, that won't fly. If you will be called by His name, you must wear His clothes. He does not address the polygamy issue. He addresses the issue of if you are going to have the name of Christ, you better have His clothes upon clothes on you. And so, let's turn to the book of Colossians for a moment and see this analogy carried out here in this exhortation, Colossians chapter 3. He says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse um, 10, um, well, starting in verse 9, Lie not one to another, Colossians 3, 9, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deed. Now here's an imagery. There's some, as in clothing, they are, clothes are put off and they are put on. And yet put on the new man, which is renewed after knowledge of the image of him that created him. Then verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God. You, you say that you are the elect of God? You say that you belong to Him? You say you believe that He died for you? That He has loved you with everlasting love? Then He says, put on these clothes. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies and kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, and so forth. Now, where do they get these clothes? Well, what are these things described to us as being in the fifth chapter of the book of, of uh, Galatians? It says, the fruit of the Spirit are these. And then he names these same sorts of things here. That is, the evidence of the Spirit of God. My friends, when a person is born again by the Spirit of God, he is given the proper clothing to wear. And, but we, as, as accountable creatures, are commanded to be putting constantly on. That's the verb tense here. Be constantly putting these on. Have these things continually brought to mind. Let him not say that he is a Christian if he's not willing to wear the garments of Christ. And so the Bible tells us in, uh, uh, in chapter 13 of Romans, verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's this word picture again. Put on Christ. In Romans chapter 3 and 22, we read these words. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. I'm telling you, my friends, and we're going to see this over in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, that the garments that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on is the very righteousness of Christ. Here's a man who has come into the wedding feast. How? Under the pretense of his own righteousness. My clothes, he said, are good enough. I only want to be called by the name of Christian, but I will wear my own clothes. 
I'll do my own thing. I'll think my own thoughts and I'll perform my own deeds. Do we not see that going on so so uh, uh, terribly in the religious world, even among Christendom as we call it? People who are denying the principles of God's Word. A whole, a whole so-called Christian denomination who has openly embraced a, a lifestyle of wickedness by exalting him to be one of, among them to be a bishop in their congregation. We see here people, they want to be called Christian. They want to be called by the name of Christ, but they don't want to put on his clothes. Now, when the, when the king comes to him and says, friend, why, why do you not have the proper clothing on? He is speechless. What could he say? I suppose he could say, well, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know, I didn't know there, that there were some special clothes. I, show, show them to me and I'll put them on. This is the king. But I suspect there's one reason why he is speechless. Because he is guilty. He has thought he could come in here and wear what he will. He will come into the presence of the king and do his own thing. He does not have to bow himself to the will of the king. He does not have to rule himself by the laws of the kingdom. He will wear his own clothes. He will do his own thing. And so his, his own speechlessness has betrayed him. And so it says here that the king, uh, so, so the king said to the, to the, to the, to the people here, the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot. This was the, this was the, uh, manner of a man who was going to his execution. Tie his hands behind his back and bind his feet. This man is doomed to execution. And take him out, he says, and cast him into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and ashing of seed. And I don't have time to go into all this, but just, just understand that this expression is always used to describe eternal ruin. This never describes anything but eternal ruin. You follow it through everywhere. It speaks of hell and destruction and eternal ruin. And then he ends with these chilling words. For many are called but few are chosen. And so it is that the gospel call goes out unto all men. Preach the gospel to every creature. We preach to all men indiscriminately, whoever they are, wherever they are. Wherever we have an opportunity, we proclaim the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but few are chosen. Only those who are chosen in Christ, only those who have been given the wedding garments will come to Christ. Now, let's turn lastly to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. Here we have a powerful scene. This wedding imagery is, is spoken of throughout all the scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 5, it is very, very poignantly spoken to in the relationship between a husband and a wife. And it's, it says that husbands should love their wives even as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so it is that the, those for whom Christ died, those who were chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world, those who were predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself according to Ephesians chapter 1, every one of them will enter into this marriage supper. And so it's described in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 19. And I love this. The whole, the whole, uh, the whole mood of Revelation uh, changes here with the 19th chapter 
up until the 19th chapter, there are intermittent times of, of, uh, of rejoicings and things as, as, as the end is drawing near. But now the tide is, is turned completely. The 19th chapter of the book of Revelation describes the coming of the king. The coming of his son. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told a parable about the ten virgins. He said five of them were wise and five were foolish. But these ten virgins were waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. And some of them who were pretenders said, yeah, he's not coming today. I don't have to be ready. I don't have to be careful. Others were always vigilant. They were always putting on as the elect of God, the, the attributes of God upon themselves. And when Jesus Christ came, when the bride came, they were ready and went out to meet him. The five wise did. The five foolish went scrambling around for some oil for their lamp. And by the time they found some and got to the wedding feast, Jesus says these chilling words. When they knocked at the door, depart from me, I know you not. And so always there are pretenders. Oh, listen, my friends. The Bible tells you and me to make our calling and election sure to ourselves. First Peter. Peter warns us of this. He encourages us to that. And the way you can know that you belong to Christ, that you are one who is chosen by Christ, is that you love His garments. You love His name. You not only want, to, you not only want the name of Christ, you not only want the name of Christian, you want to wear His clothes. You want to put on the wedding garment. You want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You want to be clothed with the finished work of Christ. You want His righteousness to be yours because you know that in and of yourself you have none for yourself. You would dare not enter into the presence of the King in your own clothes. For they are altogether unfitting, inappropriate for the occasion. Notice this. <clears throat> After the destruction of Babylon, he says in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come and His wife has made herself ready. Ah, finally, they're coming into the wedding. And to her was granted... Oh, I love this. Listen to this. And to her it was granted, it was given, that she should be arrayed with fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The Apostle Paul says that his hope was not that to be found in his own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of the saints. You know why it's the righteousness of the saints? It's because they have put on the garments of Christ. They put on the garments of His righteousness, and thus it does become their righteousness. It is indeed their meekness. It is indeed their kindness. It is indeed their patience, their long-suffering. But it's not their garment. They didn't make this up. They did not put this on themselves. They received the garment from Christ and they have put it on because they love it. They see the beauty of it. They see the glory of it. They lovingly take it to themselves. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These things are faithful and true. And then it goes into the final battle that takes place before Jesus comes and then the coming of Christ and the setting up of His kingdom in its full glory and power. Well, now we learned a very simple truth from this. Yea, we've noted it in the last two parables. All my friends, my dear, precious friends, the kingdom of God serious business. Let it not be said among us that we said we would go and not go.
Let it be said of us that we were like the other son who said, yes, I'll go and go. May it not be said of us that that we would not willingly, lovingly return the fruits to Him who has placed us in His vineyard. Let it not be said that, that we would think, deign to come into the wedding supper of the Lamb with our own righteousness, clothed with our own righteousness, with the audacious attitude of those seven women in the book of Isaiah who said, we want to be called by Your name, but we want to wear our own clothes. We want to do our own thing. We want to have our own way. We do not want to be dictated to about our garment. But my friends, those who have had a true work of grace in the heart, they love meekness. They love kindness. It suits them. They love joy. They love patience. Peace. And gentleness and faith. And goodness. And all of those things. They see the beauty of that. To them it is like, it is like a beautiful garment that is, that is put on them. They love it. They appreciate it. Oh, let it not be said among us, in any, by any of us, that we love not the things of Christ. We love not the church of Christ. That we can do without His church. We can do without His ways. We can do without His will. We can do without His word. Let, us, let there be no, no one among us who hear these awful words. Bind them hand and foot and cast them out into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing teeth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for the call from heaven that we have received. Yea, Father, there was a time in our lives when we heard the preacher preach the sweet gospel of Jesus and it became precious to our hearts. The Lord, not only will we, we trust Impressed with the salvation that He offered. But oh God, we were impressed with the clothes that He, that He gave. And so Lord, we have willingly, lovingly, we hope faithfully put them on. And yet Lord, we confess our weakness and our sinfulness. And so we pray for strength every day to be constantly putting on as the elect of God, holy and beloved, his bowels of mercy and kindness and tenderness and, and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and all these things, Lord, that are so contrary to our own nature. Father, we're thankful, eternally grateful for the, for the invitation and for the strength and the grace You gave us to accept it. To come and see that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord.